Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Allison. And today we would like to introduce our guest co-host for this episode. Please welcome our library's scholarly communications and archive administrator, Sierra Whitefield. Sierra has been at the library for almost two years and is our local archives and copyright expert. Hi, Sierra. Hi. <laughs> we would like to welcome everyone to December's More Than Books Library on the Go podcast, episode three. However, before we get started, I want to give a little warning. There are spoilers contained in this podcast. So if you would like to avoid those, please go watch the movie or read the novella and then come back and join us. This month, in the spirit of the season, we are going to be talking about a staple of the holiday yuletide, Miracle on 34th Street. Now, most people know that there are two amazing versions of this movie, one from 1947 and one from 1994. We can all agree that there are very strong opinions about which one is the best. Yet, did you know that there is also a novella? But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. In order to find out where the idea, themes, and concepts for Miracle on 34th Street came from, we have to first look at what we mean by Christmas in New York and why two men are credited for creating the modern image of what we consider Santa Claus and Christmas in New York. Many will argue New York invented Christmas. Washington Irving turned a bishop into St. Nick, Clement Moore gave him reindeer, and Madison Square Park hosted the first communal Christmas tree in 1912. Yet we can also argue that no two people did more for Christmas, Santa Claus, and their place in New York than Washington Irving and John Gluck. Now, let's travel back in time and focus on Washington Irving first. What could the creator of Sleepy Hollow have to do with Christmas and Santa Claus? On October 26, 1809, there was a notice written in the New York Evening Post that reported an elderly man who had gone missing from the Columbian Hotel on Mulberry Street. That man had last been seen wearing a black coat and a cocked hat, leaving the hotel. He had never returned. The only thing that the gentleman had left behind was a curious kind of book that the landlord intended to publish if he did not hear from the gentleman. As promised, on November 28th, another notice appeared that announced that this book, found in the chamber of Mr. Nickelbocker, who had mysteriously disappeared, was to be published on December 6th, 1809, St. Nicholas Day. The book was titled A History of New York. However, as it turned out, the whole ordeal was a publicity stunt. The book was written by Washington Irving, and the creation of the mysterious Mr. Nickelbocker was a way to get word of it out to the masses. It is important to note that at this time, although the image of St. Nicholas was very popular within the Dutch communities in New York, he was not well known outside of them. However, Irving, due to his storytelling, can be given credit for spreading what we consider the modern representation of Santa Claus across the United States. Without a history, the jolly sleigh riding St. Nick would never have caught on and could very well have died out as many original beliefs of the early church did. However, Irving's stunt worked, and in 1835, Irving helped to found the St. Nicholas Society of the City of New York and advanced Christmas to the festive season of presents and feasting that we see today across the country. Now, moving forward in time, we travel from New York in 1835 to New York in 1913 and meet our other creator, John Gluck. Starting in the 1870s, reports spreading of the local post offices receiving letters to Santa Claus, and with no actual person to send them to, they ended up in one of two places destroyed or in what would become known as the dead letter office. However, this resulted in negative publicity for the Postal Service, which resulted in New York City's postmaster declaring that every year for the entire month of December, one approved organization will be allowed to answer Santa Claus mail. However, no one volunteered until 1913 when a man named John Gluck stated that he would be Santa Claus for the children of New York. The problem was Gluck was also a con artist. He was a natural showboat and after the post office approved, he started the Santa Claus Association. 
The Santa Claus Association was what New Yorkers needed. It restarted their holiday spirit. It would eventually lead to the start of some of the biggest traditions in the holiday season that we see today. In the beginning, the association was a group of volunteers that would go through each letter and decide if it met the requirements for help or if they could be sent to a potential donor. In the beginning, the association never handled any funds or gifts. Their goal was to read the letters and get them to rich donors who could afford to buy presents for the kids or who had the time to write back to the children. All they ever asked for was stamps or funds for stamps to send letters. The association at its height would claim a database of over 76,000 New York donors, including Astors and Vanderbilts. Gluck's work with the association and its attempts to bring Santa Claus and Christmas to New York would eventually lead many leaders of the city to create two of the most loved aspects of the holiday, the tree lighting at Rockefeller Center and the Macy's Day Parade. Let's take a moment and have a look at these two traditions. The tree at Rockefeller Center began as a small lighting ceremony in Madison Square Park in 1912. It was the first event of its kind in the United States, and it was the brainchild of Emil Lee Herredhoff as a way to bring Christmas to New Yorkers rich and poor. However, Gluck saw this new holiday tradition as a way to get his Santa association, and by default, the image of Santa Claus into the forefront of everyone's mind and associate him with the meaning of Christmas and Christmas in New York. It was not until 1933 that this yearly tradition was moved to Rockefeller Center, but by this point, the tree lighting and Santa were connected in everybody's mind. As for the second tradition, it's known that the fourth Thursday of November marks the beginning of the holiday season in New York, and the opening event is the Macy's Day Parade. The parade started in 1924 and was originally conceived as a way to celebrate the expansion of the Macy's main store. The original parade looked very different from what you see today. It was made up of Macy's staff wearing colorful clothing, live animals such as lions, monkeys, and elephants from the Central Park Zoo, and floats that represented the themes of Macy's Christmas window display. Yet the store needed an idea of how to bring the parade together and how to end it with a bang. After some thought, they realized that there was only one way to go. By 1924, John Gluck's Santa Claus Association had been bringing worldwide attention to both the figure of Santa Claus and New York. He had made the image of Santa Claus a figure loved by millions and recognizable by millions, to such an extent that in the last few years there had been a campaign to make Santa Claus the patron saint of New York. They argued that since Gluck had already brought Santa Claus into the hearts and minds of millions of children, why not physically bring Santa Claus to New York and set him up in the store to meet kids, thereby further cementing the connection between Macy's, Santa Claus, and New York. Despite Gluck's many faults, his legacy is that he brought the image of Santa Claus to New York. He made Santa Claus real for millions of children and adults that had very little to hope for at the time. As a result of this goodwill and spirit of giving, he gave New York something to believe in, which resulted in New York creating the true season of giving and hope. Now that we have talked about how Santa Claus came to New York and the two people who made it possible, let's start looking at the amazing holiday classic Miracle on 34th Street. Let's first look at the novella. The story of Miracle on 34th Street has a very interesting beginning, as it is one of the few situations I have heard of where both the novella and the movie were being created simultaneously. However, the idea came from one man, Valentine Davis. Valentine Davis was born in New York City on August 25th, 1905. He would grow up to be an American film and television writer, producer, and director on over 26 different films and TV shows during his career. Yet the thing he is most remembered for is being the author of a novella called Miracle on 34th Street. The idea for this story came to him in 1943 as he stood in line at a big department store during the Christmas season. Davis asked himself, what would happen if Santa Claus found himself stranded in an iconic department store amid the commercialized chaos of the American Christmas? What if he got a close look at the rapturous retailers, the sloganeers, and the price gougers as they hid their greed under hypocritical claptrap about goodwill towards all men? Davis scribbled down a summary of characters and how the story might take shape. His final result was the story of Kris Kringle. Now, here's the interesting thing. 
Although Davis's book was written at the same time as the movie was being created, and although Davis did create the idea for the storyline for both the book and the movie, Davis's book cannot be considered a novelization of the movie. This is because although Davis handed the beginning of the story over to George Seaton to, as he said, see what you can do with this, that's where his involvement in the movie ended. This means that although the novella contained the same storyline and characters as the film, it developed independently from the film. If you think about it, the big difference between a novella and a novelization is what they accomplish. In most cases, you will end up with a film that is based off of a novella. In this case, the novella fleshes out the storyline and the characters, and the film will be a condensed version of the story, whereas a novelization will follow the movie exactly, with only building up conversations for background information. In the case of novelization, if it's in the movie, it's in the book, in the exact same time and in the exact same sequence that it happened in the movie. Yet for a novella that a movie is based off of, it doesn't have to follow those rules, such as in the case of this novella. The plot is the same, the character bases are the same, but Davis had the opportunity to flush them out. He was also not limited to a time frame like a movie is. This can be seen in the fact that there are a number of differences between the book and the 1947 version, despite the fact that Davis came up with both the book and the movie concept. For example, the novella has a lot more backstory and connection to Chris for where he was before he showed up at the parade, and at no time in the book does Mr. Shellhammer ever get his wife drunk. There is also a difference in time between the book and the movie. In the movie, Susan gives Chris her wish the first night he comes over for dinner. Whereas in the book, it is not until a few days after he becomes the store Santa when Chris and Susan are walking in the park together that the subject is brought up. It shows that although the audience is supposed to assume that the movie is taking place over a number of days, the book can actually show that. It is these tiny differences that make it stand on its own. But now we need to ask ourselves, what about this book has kept it alive? What turned Davis's idea into a Christmas classic? A classic that has been adapted into a number of different versions, including children's books, films, and a Broadway musical. And the argument that has been made is that the realism and the themes of the story keep it alive. The realism of the novella and the movies is that it's a modern day fairy tale. It shows Christmas in New York as most people see it, the commercialism and the constant rush. Yet there are no elves or flying reindeer. Pity. Absolutely. It's set in the real world, which makes this fairy tale more believable. This aspect of realism leads to some interesting themes. Most of your run-of-the-mill Christmas stories are built on the basic ideas of generosity and giving gifts or finding that one true love. But a lot of classics have a major element of transformation. In A Christmas Carol, Marley and the other spirits show Scrooge the error of his ways. In The Grinch, he hears the Who's celebrating without the things that came from the stores, and he's changed. In It's a Wonderful Life, Clarence shows George that his life matters and he is not a failure. And in Miracle on 34th Street, a real-life Santa brings the amazement of Christmas back to the lives of a disillusioned mother, her daughter, and the city of New York, saving them from cynicism and restoring the idea of believing is seeing and that you must have faith despite it going against common sense. This concept of bringing belief and faith back to people is important. Due to what is happening in the United States at the time that this novella and the original movie came out, by 1947, World War II had only been over for about three years. The US economy was booming. Americans could have anything and everything they wanted after years of rationing everything. The fact that America is now producing its own products rather than relying on countries such as Germany, products that are substantially cheaper than those that were being purchased before the war. It was a time where America was almost completely self-efficient for the first 
first time in history. Now, the other interesting fact is that up until this point, most if not all of America's Christmas decorations, traditions, and holiday food came from either Germany, a country that we had just fought a major war with, or they had strong ties to Dutch and German culture. Due to this, there was a strong drive in America to Americanize how we celebrate the holidays. In a way, you can understand why the holiday became so commercialized and consumer driven. Spending a lot at the holiday was a way to show that America was no longer in the dark days, a way to make up for all the time lost in the past. America at this point in history was definitely a dollar driven society where businesses and people would forget that the almighty dollar does not drive everything. The other factor is that at this time, the war had only been over for three years. Many veterans who had returned and the families of those that had not were still suffering from pain, grief, the loss of faith, and the loss of something to believe in. Traditions had been lost or left by the wayside during the war, or as a way for immigrants to try and Americanize themselves. It was hard, if not impossible, to bring them back or remember them. New traditions were taking their place, and the idea of putting the person first and giving to others had slipped away. The themes of Davis's book shows how to bring back these beliefs that existed before the war. It argues that there's hope, you just have to believe in order to see it, and that by putting others before yourself, you can make that happen, not only for yourself, but for others. In the 1994 version of the film, there is a wonderful quote that I think sums it up wonderfully. Chris says, I am a symbol of the human ability to be able to suppress the selfish and hateful tendencies that rule the major parts of our lives. If you can't believe, if you can't accept anything on faith, then you're doomed for a life dominated by doubt. Now that we have focused on the history of Christmas in New York and Valentine Davis's book, let's take a look at the two versions of the movie. The original adaption of the film was released in 1947 and starred Maureen O'Hare, John Payne, Edmund Gwen, and Natalie Wood. The film won three Academy Awards, the Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Edmund Gwen, Best Writer Original Story for Valentine Davis, Best Writing Screenplay, and it was nominated for Best Picture, but it lost to a gentleman's agreement. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 96%. It is currently listed as number nine on the American Film Institute's list of 100 Years, 100 Cheers, which is a list of America's most inspiring films. And in 2005, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Now let's talk about some fun facts for this film. Unbeknownst to most parade watchers, Edmund Gwen played Santa Claus in the actual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade held on November 28, 1946. He filled the duties of most parade Santas, including addressing the crowd from Macy's Marquee after it was over, and later unveiled the mechanical Christmas display windows at the store. The director of the film negotiated with Macy's to allow Gwen to play Santa in the parade that year so that he could get their shots for the movie of the parade. They said it was very tricky due to the fact that they only had one chance to get the shots and there were thousands of people there. Another fact is that both Macy's and Gimbel's did not give permission to use their names in the film until after the film was finished and they had seen it. Thirdly, the film was banned by the Legion of Decency as it depicted a divorced single mother in a normal light. Just scandalous. Finally, Alvin Greenmans, who played Alfred, was the last surviving member of the original cast when the remake was filmed in 1994. The director asked him to come back for a part in the new movie, where he played another Alfred. He was the doorman of Susan and her mother's building. The remake of this film was released in 1994, and it starred Richard Attenborough, who we all may know from his role in Jurassic Park as Mr. Hammond, Elizabeth Perkins, Dylan Dermont, and Mara Wilson, who you may recognize from Matilda and Mrs. Doubtfire. However, Rotten Tomatoes only gave this film a 60%, and it was only nominated for one award, a Saturn Award, for Best Supporting Actor for Richard Attenborough. Now let's talk about some fun facts for this film. 
In its original theatrical release, 20th Century Fox offered a full refund to any viewer who didn't enjoy the movie. Approximately 1,500 tickets were returned to the studio. And it's interesting to note that Macy's refused to be involved with this movie, which explains why the store is called Kohl's rather than Macy's. Now, based on this information, we can very obviously see that there was a very different reception between these two movies. But why? What would be so different about them that it would create such a debate about which one is the best? Let's look at some of the differences between the two movies and see if we can work it out. The first biggest change involves names. In the 1947 version, the main characters are Dory, Susan, and Fred Gailey. While in the 1994 version, since the name Dory had gone out of fashion, they changed it to Doris. Susan's name remained the same, but for some reason they changed Fred Gailey to Brian Bedford, seeming to try to make a connection between another holiday classic, It's a Wonderful Life, whose main characters lived in Bedford Falls. However, the biggest change takes place in the names of the stores connected to the film. In the 1947 version, the two stores are Macy's and Gimbel's. Now, this makes sense due to the fact that at the time, these two stores were the biggest department stores in the United States, and they had the most widely seen campaigns against each other due to the fact that they were only blocks apart in New York, and they were competing for the same customers. Now, there are two main reasons for the names of the store changing between the 1947 version and the 1994 version. First, in 1994, the Macy's store refused to let its name be used in the movie, which is why the name was changed to Kohl's. Second, the Gimbel's department store had gone out of business in 1987, so most of the viewer base for this movie would not know the significance of the Gimbel's name in 1994. With this in mind, the writers invented Shoppers Express to be the fictional Macy's competitor, which I also find interesting because the name Kohl's still gives you the very customer comes first, good quality type image in your head when you hear it. Whereas the name Shoppers Express makes you think low quality, only after money, warehouse type store. Very commercialized, yes. Yes. Another big difference between the two movies is that in the 1947 version, a woman brings a newly immigrated child who only speaks Dutch to see Santa, and Santa talks to her in Dutch. Whereas in the 1994 version, the woman brings a girl who is deaf to see Santa, and Santa speaks to her in ASL, which both scenes are amazing. I love it so much. I think that the reason for this is the era that these films are taking place in. In the 1940s, the United States is still having an influx of immigrants from Europe trying to escape the post-war destruction, making it completely possible for viewers to interact with communities that only spoke Dutch. However, in 1994, it would be a lot harder for that type of situation to happen. Whereas American Sign Language had a big movement in the 1980s and 90s to bring about attention to deaf communities and causes, thereby making it more relatable to the 1990s audience. The next change we're going to look at speaks to the tone of the two films. It has been argued that the 1947 version has a lighter, happier tone than the 1994 version, which is darker and has more sinister undercurrents. People argue that this is seen in two ways. The first is the situation at the parade in the first part of the film. In the 1947 version, when Chris discovers that the Santa on the float is drunk, he is very drunk, almost comically so. He's slurring and about to pass out. It's lighthearted and funny. Side note, the guy who played the Santa in the 1947 version at the beginning is also in White Christmas as the train conductor, which it's another Christmas movie that I absolutely adore. But then in the 1994 version, the parade Santa is angry, volatile, and he ends up dropping his pants, making small children scream, 
and ultimately ends up knocking the float over on top of himself, basically destroying Christmas and the image of Santa Claus for everyone, because that's definitely what you want to see at the parade at Thanksgiving. Yeah, that is a point in the 40s version. At least that time, Santa Claus catches everything before the drunk Santa can ruin everything. <laughs> he saves Christmas. Yes, very much so. The second example is how Chris ends up being arrested and sent to Bellevue Hospital. In the 1947 version, Chris is having an argument with the store medic, Grandville Sawyer, who thinks that he is a psychiatrist. I always thought this was weird when I was little because I could never figure out why a department store would have a medic or a psychiatrist or why they would allow a medic who is not a doctor and is definitely not a psychiatrist treat anyone. In fact, after seeing the 1947 version for the first time, I actually thought to myself that Mr. Sawyer needed to be committed more than Chris did. Definitely. And, yeah. and I always wondered how he got away with treating people the way he did. You're, you're kind of looking at this and like, where is the HR department? Excellent question. Come to find out, it was actually very common for large businesses, especially large department stores, to have their own medical facilities within the store for their staff to use in the 1940s. So it was common at this time for places such as Macy's to have a medic on staff. Yet in the 1994 version, there is no Granville Sawyer. So they had to create a new person to be responsible for Chris being committed. And we have to ask ourselves why. In this film, who is the villain? Is it the court system? The prosecuting attorney? Commercialization? Or is it someone else? Now, here's the thing. Between the two movies, the villain has changed significantly. In the 1947 version, the true villain is in fact Macy's medic, Granville Sawyer. It's interesting that they chose to make him the villain due to the fact his motives do not have anything to do with business, commercialization, or Christmas at all. His motives are completely personal. Let me explain. Sawyer and Chris are two sides of a coin. Chris believes he is Santa Claus, which causes most people that interact with him to feel that this is a delusion, but that it's not dangerous. Chris is kind and only wants people to be happy, while Sawyer suffers from delusions of grandeur. He believes that he's the smartest person in the room, but he's also greedy, manipulative, and will let no one stand between him and what he wants, thereby pitting two opposing forces against each other. In this film, the trouble is that Chris is naturally smart and a good-natured person. And upon finding out that Sawyer is psychoanalyzing Alfred and telling him that there's something wrong with people like him, people who like to dress up like Santa and give presents, how dare he do something kind and helpful to children? Exactly. He feels that Sawyer is doing more harm than good and goes to tell him to stop. In the course of this conversation, both Chris and Sawyer get upset and Chris ends up bopping Sawyer on the head. However, Sawyer then pretends to be more seriously hurt than he is in order to not only get Chris fired, but to get him committed. Now, most people would wonder why someone would do this. The answer is that due to Sawyer's image of himself, his selfishness and his delusions of grandeur, his pride and his vision of himself was challenged. Chris is challenging everything that Sawyer believes about himself, and to him, the only option is to not only get rid of the challenge and reestablish himself as the winner, but to do something far worse to the challenger, thereby trying to destroy the image of kindness and selflessness. Which is especially interesting because he's the one that keeps going on and on about how Chris is deluded and he's going to lash out as soon as someone tries to challenge him. Yes. Therefore, we can argue that the real villain of the 1947 version is the human persona of selfishness, greed, and delusions of grandeur. Which I would argue those aspects are still pretty big villains these days. Yeah, unfortunate some things are eternal. Mm -hmm. Yet in the 1994 version, they changed the villain and it took it from a small personal villain to a big business villain. At no time in the original did either of the businesses do something underhanded or illegal. Yet in the remake, it is Shoppers Express that is using bribery, setups, and other means to take down the person they feel is the biggest risk to them and their business. 
And to some extent, you have to understand that change being from the 90s because it was definitely a big movement of big business trying to take on the little guy, trying to destroy the small business and the small retail owners, that kind of stuff. It was definitely a part of the culture at the time. This is true. And it was pretty hilarious watching in the 40s version that the other businesses go, how dare they make us look bad by being so awesome? We have to out-awesome them. Exactly. Whereas in the remake, you have, well, why didn't you come up with this idea? We can't do that. How? Like, just give them cheap stuff for lower prices. <laughs> This changes the statement of the movie, making it about how the big evil corporation is trying to destroy the little guy and everything that is good about Christmas, while replacing it with material items and commercialism. In a way, by changing the villain, it focuses more on the idea of Christmas becoming commercialized and that in fact the whole of New York is being affected by the story. In the 1947 version, everything seems to happen on a smaller scale. You have a smaller, more personalized villain, and the moment that the idea of belief takes hold is smaller and on a more personal scale. In this version, that change happens when Susan and her mother are discussing belief and Susan writes her letter to Chris that both her mother and her sign. Whereas in the 1994 version, Susan and her mother take a drive through New York where they see signs all over the city proclaiming that they believe in Santa Claus, making it bigger to the city as a whole rather than just one little girl and her mother believing. I will admit, during this scene of the car ride, I always get a little weepy. It just makes me so happy. The final difference we are going to talk about is the change in the end. In the 1947 version, the final thing that makes the judge rule in Chris's favor is the fact that the U.S. Post Office decided to contact Fred Gailey, Chris's lawyer, and Fred works out a plan and has them deliver all the letters in the dead letter office addressed to Santa Claus to the courtroom to Chris. The judge then decides that since the post office is an official government agency, it therefore can't be wrong. If the United States Post Office recognizes Chris as the official Santa Claus, so do we. This goes back to when we were talking about John Gluck back in 1913. For you to have access to the Santa Claus letters, the post office has to approve and officially recognize you as Santa. Therefore, a government agency is giving legitimacy to Chris. This pro-government idea that the government agencies are never wrong was very strong in 1947 due to the fact that the United States had just won a war and the economy was booming. While in the 1994 version, they changed it to Susan giving the judge a Christmas card containing a dollar bill that Brian had circled the phrase, in God we trust, leading the judge to argue that if the US Treasury can believe in God, then the people of New York can believe in Santa Claus. I think the reason for this change is that by the 1990s, most people would not understand the significance of the post office recognizing one person as the embodiment of Santa Claus. So keeping the ending the same would just kind of confuse people. This change also has a better argument for the idea of belief. In the 1947 version, it was the Postal Service of New York, one physical entity recognizing one specific person as Santa Claus. While in the 1994 version, it was the United States government recognizing the existence of an unseen person, an idea rather than an actual person. Now we are going to have a small discussion with Allison, Sierra, and myself to see what our thoughts and opinions about these books and the two movies are. What are your thoughts on holiday movies in general? Oh, I love holiday movies. Like, I mean, even compared to Halloween, it's just Christmas just makes you feel so warm and homey and like you're just curled up next to the fire. Not quite my thing, but they are very cute and fluffy. I like the classic family feel of them. In all honesty, if I had a choice, I would watch them year round. Anytime I am... What do you mean, would? Okay, that is true. <laughs> I do watch them year round. 
I'm like, especially if I'm like sick or feeling a little down or something, it's pretty much a guarantee that any Christmas movie you watch is going to have a happy ending. That's just the way it's going to be. Even Die Hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Though some will argue, that's not a Christmas movie. I'm like, yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is. It is set at a Christmas party. It counts. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's kind of like Gremlins is too, technically. <laughs> I'm like, Gizmo, was a Christmas present? Don't feed your presents after midnight, kids. Yes. Yes. Do you have any specific thoughts on either of the books or the movie, on which one is better, which one do you like more? Honestly, I would rate the novella and the 1946 version mm-hmm. as about the same. Like, they're very similar. Like, as I was reading the novella, like, it was really cool to see how, like, there were just full lines just taken from mm-hmm. the original text. Mm-hmm. I can definitely understand why somebody would dislike the 1994 version. Mm-hmm. Um, I did like some of the directorial decisions that they made. I thought the lighting in a lot of the scenes was really really good but yeah I thought that turning like the competitor into like the main villain was very blase in a lot of ways <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I gotta admit I kind of liked the 40s version myself too I did not read the novelization but the 40s version was very sweet so I loved that scene where he's talking to the little Dutch girl and she's just she just looks so sad and then it's just like she just lights up like Christmas has come early everything is great <laughs> did you watch the 1994 version I have not <laughs> I gotta admit, if I have to watch something I like a classic, the 90s was just too recent. (laughs) Personally, I would have to say I prefer the 94 version better, but that might be more of a nostalgia thing, because that's the first version I saw, and I was like... I think I was like 10 the first time I watched it, because I will say the 1947 version is my mom's favorite movie of all time. That one and my dad's favorite was It's a Wonderful Life, so through all Christmas it's just those two back and forth. Then you throw in some of the Flintstone ones too. The one thing I will say that the 1984 version has with the 1946 version is the inclusion of the reindeer. Mm-hmm. Mm, I did enjoy that. Honestly, I think, especially like in the courtroom scenes, there's a lot more banter back and forth in the 94 version that makes it a little more fun, such as the, the little kid that's saying the prosecuting attorney can't be Santa Claus because he's got a grumpy face. <laughs> I did appreciate the 40s version where they took the prosecutor's kid and they said, so is there a Santa Claus kid? And he's just like, yeah, my dad said so. He wouldn't say something that's not true. And then he looks at his dad like, right, dad? They kind of did that in the 94 version, except they changed it to it's his wife that they subpoenaed (laughs) that he has to be talked to. And it's just the look on his face like, are you kidding me? Really? (laughs) Though I will say in the 47 version, I do like the fact that the judge's grandkids will not kiss him goodnight because he has Santa Claus on trial. (laughs) How dare. (laughs) It's like the audacity. (laughs) And his wife has to explain that to him. (laughs) Yes, because he doesn't get it. (laughs) Poor guy. (laughs) Do you think the themes of the movies match the novella or do you think they seem to focus on something else? Um, I would say they match the novella pretty well. I mean, even in the novella, like, they still talk about, like, the commercialization of Christmas and all of that, so I think they match pretty closely, even with the 1994 version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I definitely say there is a stronger punch towards it's the big business trying to take over Christmas and everything in the 94 version than either both the book or the novella, but I understand why they would want to cut out the character of the medic who tries to be a psychiatrist, because I'm like, I did not understand that until I actually looked it up, because I'm like, who is this person? Why would a store have a psychiatrist? That's a solid question, (laughs) unless you're trying to understand the people who buy stuff, but I don't think you need a psychiatrist for that. Just see what's selling. Yeah, and one that is purposely running around the store telling everybody that, well, anybody who wants to dress up like Santa and give people presents, you're insane. 
Yeah, that's just not professional at all. You're gonna grab <laughs> the 17 year old janitor and psychoanalyze the poor kid? I, mm-hmm. Don't you have a job to do? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Do you guys have anything else you want to mention about the movies or the books or anything? It was very sweet. It was very adorable. Yeah, I, I, I cried a lot. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit that. Oh, yeah. it's the For me, it's the scene when they're going driving through New York and everybody believes and all this, and then you get the big ticker tay at the end and everything. It's that gets me every time, and then and it's a wonderful life when everybody starts showing up and giving them money and everything. I always get weepy at those points. Aww. I'm like, but it's so cute. I love it. I do wish that at the end of the 1994 version, we would have like the same ending shot with like the cane. Mm-hmm. I think the only hint you get in that one is that Mr. Shellhammer says the phrase, well, Chris wanted to be here, but he's overseas for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> and that's as close as you get to it, except for Susan going, well, I wanted a baby brother. I guess I have to wait for that, but he'll get it, right? <laughs> You're like, sure. And that's how she found out she was pregnant. Yes, yes, basically, <laughs> basically. But I can also understand why they wouldn't want to insert that in a 1940s version since it was already scandalous enough that you would have a divorced woman raising a child. I have to admit, I was pretty surprised there at the end when he came to her door and she kissed him on the cheek. <laughs> yes. Wow, for the 40s, that seems like it escalated quickly. <laughs> yes. I think the other big issue people have had is in the scene where he proposes to her and she turns him down. People are like, well, he has no right to be angry and all this stuff. I'm like, well, he's not angry that she just turned down. In this version, she's been stringing him along for years. Whereas in the original version, there's no actual real indication that they are anything but next door neighbors. And she allows him to hang out with her child every now and then. But in the 1947, they have a housekeeper nanny lady. So anytime Brian or Fred in that version is hanging out with Susan, the nanny lady is there. Susan and Fred are never by themselves. I'm like, if they go for a walk in the park, the nanny's there. If they go to the department store, the nanny's there. Because that time leaving a child alone with a random man, it's, it's, no, you don't do that. That's unacceptable. Just the random neighbor that you apparently just got, no less. Yes. Regardless, didn't this guy just move in? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> we don't do that even in the modern day. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. So I guess in this point, since they were deleting the housekeeper slash nanny, I guess they had to insert, no, they've known him for a while. He has been around for a while, so it's okay. (laughs) So it's very interesting, the massive difference you get between the two. And then on some cases, I've heard that some people just prefer the 1947 version because of the cast. And I will say there is a lot of chemistry between the original cast in that film. And Maureen O'Hare made comments that they hung out together outside of filming. They went to pubs, they got together for holidays, that kind of stuff. And the person who played Fred Gailey, for years, he bought the rights to this film because he wanted to do a sequel with this cast so badly. And other people, they like this version just because they love Natalie Wood so much and she was so great in this film. And it was so connected because at no time during the filming of this movie did Edmund Gwen ever get out of character with her. Every time he was around her, he was Santa Claus. And I guess it wasn't until the rap party that she realized he was not the real Santa Claus. And she was just devastated. I'm like, that is so cute. Somebody tell the poor child he's in disguise. It's it's totally Santa. (laughs) It's kind of like when the kids go to set when they were filming Harry Potter and asked where Dobby was. And he's just like, he's in his trailer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sometimes you just gotta let him keep that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And it's kind of like, I've been discussing the idea of, is it okay to let your kids believe in Santa Claus? And I'm like, go for it. Let it take its natural course. If they want to, they want to. <laughs> but personally, I would say, I love the concept of Santa Claus. I enjoy it. And even like, as you got older, because in my house when we were little, we didn't have the chimney and the fireplace. So it was always a question of, well, how did he get in there? And then I had to laugh because we watched when the Santa Claus first came out. <laughs> and it just appears. I'm like, that's, I'm like, I am older, but that is how it happens. That is what happens. I'm like, okay, we finally got the answer. <laughs> That was a good one. <laughs> well, thank you very much for you guys for helping us out today. Thank you, Sierra, for joining us. And hopefully you'll be able to join us for future ones. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, please stop by the library and check out The Santa Claus Man, The Rise and Fall of a Jazz Age Con Man, and The Invention of Christmas in New York by Alex Palmer. Or you will also be able to find the novella from Miracle on 34th Street by Valentine Davis and the 1947 film Miracle on 34th Street here at our library. Thank you for joining us and we hope you had as much fun as we did. Remember the library's holiday party is Wednesday, December 8th, and we hope to see you there. Thanks for joining us. Bye guys. Bye.